Hello and welcome to Integrated Rhythm with Susomo Salamani and myself, Bobby White, two swing dancing besties navigating the world of race and the black experience in jazz dance. Uh, that's swing dancing and other Afrocentric social dances. First off, we want to thank you so much for being patient with us as we take a break to deal with a life situation. Uh, that life situation has not changed very much, so we might have to take a break again uh, at some point in the near future. Once again, we appreciate your patience so much. We do think we can get in a few more episodes before that happens, so we're going to try to get you some new, fresh, integrated rhythm content, starting with today's episode where Chisomo and I talk about the New York Times article that featured swing dancer Latasha Barnes. And uh, myself was interviewed for the article, and so we talk about the process of being interviewed, the process of the article, and all the interesting things that come about around that. Now, this is one of the things I love about this episode that you're about to hear is that this is very much a kind of conversation that Chisomo and I have all the time. And it's the reason why our phone calls last up to three or four hours. We've edited out big chunks of this because this conversation went in 25 different directions like it usually does when Chisomo and I talk. So we tried to keep it focused for you. But all of that said, it covers a lot of different places, and we hope you really enjoy it. Integrated Rhythm with Chisomo and Bobby. So Chisomo, I got called by the New York Times Dude. one day, and they yes. were like, hey, we're doing an article on Latasha Barnes. And I was like, not surprised. And... Then they were like, we'd like to interview. And I was like, okay, okay, cool, cool. Um, because I'm very nervous about this, but, you know, I, uh, a little background. I was a journalist. My mom was, my mom was a journalist, an award-winning journalist for 35, uh, for many years. And I myself, after college, uh, went into journalism and worked at a paper before I became a swing dance instructor. Yeah. And so first off, by far the most healthiest work environment I've ever been in, uh, with the exception of the fact that there's a lot of workaholics in journalism. Mm -hmm. But um, but like it was, uh, you know, that journalism was doing open floor planned work before a lot of other people, because that's how you keep your ear on the on the what's going on that's how you like communicate yeah. amongst your fellow journalists and like get your scoops and whatnot yeah, that's how you get your story yeah dun, dun. yes and uh and also like the the it, it was a really fun environment to be in because like everyone has uh everyone's curious by default oh and that's so cool everyone likes to tell stories by default yeah and everyone um knows a lot about a lot of stuff by yeah. default and then everyone has gallows humor which mm. means that the jokes are often and hilarious and often kind of dark because most journalists <laughs> yeah. have seen some shit yeah yeah but bobby i think this also explains why you're such a great writer and historian you have these amazing skills you obviously also had some situated learning from your mom who 
was an award-winning journalist. A mom who interviewed me every second of the day. (laughs) (laughs) To this day, I visit mom. It's an interview. And she's like so lovely. She knows that she does it. She knows it's just like who she is. And she'll be like, by the way, stop me if you don't want to be interviewed. And like, so now, now we have a very comfortable relationship where I'm like, yeah, mom, I don't want to be interviewed right now. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I feel like to be a mom is to be an investigative journalist. Like, (laughs) Yeah, especially yes, absolutely. Oh man, that makes a lot, that's a lot of sense. I I noticed that. Um, so uh, there's a particular um, friend of mine whose whose family I've gotten really close to, and her mom does the same thing my mom does, where she is like she has a list of questions for me ready to go, you know, and it's like how are you doing with this thing? What's going on with that thing? What, you know, and it's like all practical things in my life, like having to do with permanent residency or having to do with, you know, and I'm like, I was just saying hi. And how are you? <laughs> By the way, our moms, if you're listening, we love you. Y'all are amazing. Incredible. Moms. You are. You are. Well, you all make sure that our lives happen because some of us are not always the greatest at staying on top of stuff. So (laughs) staying alive. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually appreciate it. I do appreciate it. Um, right. So, uh, yeah. So I think that, uh, the newsroom was a very, very, is a very fun and healthy place. It might, it might be changing these days. I don't mean in a, Thanks to PC language. I don't mean that. Um, <laughs> I mean that, you know, just like the scope of journalism is changing and it's a, it's yeah. maybe even moving outside of the office a lot more. Anyway, point being, I get called by the New York Times 14 minutes later. Um, I get called by the New York Times and um, they, they want to do a story on me. And so like on, so already I know I'm going to be kind of a weird interview. So like he, he, uh, he called the author calls me and um, uh, the reporter the reporter calls me and uh, starts talking and I say um, by the way are you recording this and he says oh yeah yeah if that's okay so first off if you're out there if you're going to interview somebody tell them immediately that they are being recorded it's it's the right thing to do Um. So uh, he's recording me, and which is great. I want him to record me so that he can go back and look at the conversation and see the context and like write things down accurately, verbatim, because uh, many of you out there, uh, <laughs> there's a, there's maybe a a fun episode we could do someday on uh, when there's less important things to talk about, where we talk about like the history of swing dance in in like modern American major journalism. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, in journalism throughout its entire, in journalism throughout its entire life is how writers write about swing dancing. Yeah. And so like all that's going, what's going through my head is that a lot of, so first off, a lot of journalists are people who, um, you know, they spend their entire day writing and they, 
they love telling stories. And so they try to be vibrant in the stories that they tell that they try to tell yeah. with richness. They, they also, especially when it comes to swing dancing, for some reason, so many of them resort to like, it's fun and exciting and, and it's a yeah. chance for me as an author to be funny, which often does not happen in journalism. In journalism, you're writing the story of, you know, the, the recent horrible thing going on in politics. You're writing the story right. of the recent horrible thing going on in crime. You're talking about the recent horrible thing going on um, in the community. You're, t you're talking mm -hmm. about so many things that don't give you a chance to give levity or to, mm -hmm. or to have excitement. Um, and so like, as soon as an author gets a chance to write about something like swing dancing, they oftentimes, they overdo it a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like get your kicks in with, then throw each other <laughs> around. That's what it's all about. Like they, they, you know, through their humor or their excited writing, they tend to oversimplify and undervalue or yeah. misvalue the compl the complex rich tapestry that is american jazz dance yeah yeah um i think it was d daniels Locke who said to me that we have a we have a complicated relationship with toxic positivity as Ooh. it's associated with swing dancing yes yeah and so um it, and what you're talking about writing reflects this. There's like this toxic positivity associated with swing dancing. It doesn't seem toxic when you're, because like you said, I, I'm sure that journalists are like, oh yeah, we're good to talk about swing dancing. So it's going to be fun, fun, fun. Like, like fun for everyone. The whole family is invited. And so, um, so then that colors their lens that um, kind of, there's this preconceived notion that swing dancing is fun and exciting and vibrant and it's a gap commercial and it tells a pop in and all these things that just seem like on the surface, super vibrant and wonderful. Um, and that's not to say it's not, but like those of us who are in swing dancing, we know of the complex nuances that are involved. And then the expression of swing dancing also doesn't always have to be like over the top joyful either. So, um, yeah, I, I, I hear you. By the way, D Daniels lot. First off, you're awesome. Mm -hmm. Second off, you sound like a 17th century poet of letters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I believe it was D Daniels Locke who once said, <laughs> yes. who first stated <laughs> exactly. Yes. Not to get, uh, what's the word, uh, not to base my understanding on stereotypes, but first off, because it's the New York Times, I'm like, okay, this, you know, this well-regarded paper, even though they definitely have some issues, well-regarded paper, their journalists are probably up on, like, making sure that they approach topics respectfully. Uh, second of all, it's about Latasha, not necessarily about swing dancing, like, it's about mm -hmm. Latasha and what she's doing. And she has a Guggenheim, uh, this was all regarding a Guggenheim show that she yeah. had upcoming at the time and which has now passed. So I'm sorry, public, you cannot see it. And by the way, they only did 
two freaking performances of the thing and they were on the same day and I could not go on that day because I was out of town. And so if you're going to pay someone thousands and thousands of dollars to put together a freaking awesome show for you, do not just do two performances on the same day that her best friends can't go to see. I agree with that. Okay. I understand it's the Guggenheim, but I'm also like, whenever you have an amazing showcase, you should have it at least at the very least over a weekend or have it on two different weekends. So if you have two night spots, then, and especially if there's like minimal setup, like I, I think that that makes sense versus having like a matinee and an, and a nighttime performance on one day, because then you can only have one set of audience members that are available on one specific day. So. And at some of these, they're doing the, they're doing the like, uh, social distanced um audiences which is great but that means that like 12 people get to see a show and right. then 12 people get to see the second show that's all 24 people got to see this incredible show that was written about in the new york times not literally 12 not literally 24 people but that's the basic yeah. feeling <laughs> that's the basic yeah feeling. well it's it's a reduced audience size i i wonder if people would i understand that this may not be i'm not in production so i i'm offering a critique or a question or a solution from a place of ignorance. But I wonder if places like that, if it would make sense to have some sort of recording that um, could be, you know, could be shared, right? Or um, one would think. Well, I would, I would think that you would have the mechanisms in place, like have cameras from a couple different angles um, and put piece something together and then make that available as an install as a virtual installation as well. One would think. Right. So I'll have to, I'll have to ask Tasha, but I assume they record it. I assume if you, if you're putting, if you're paying people grants to come and do performances, I assume you're making sure that those performances are recorded in some way for posterity. Right. Prosperity. Pros posterity. No, you right on, right on. Okay. And uh, the, however, what's done with that is probably one of those frustrations where, like, I'm sure a lot of those performances are somewhere, and we will never see them again, perhaps, or right. maybe, or or yeah, maybe maybe they use them for special donors, or maybe they they will do, maybe they will show them on, you know, some special, you know, just how like the Met, you know, like when the quarantine happened and the Met was like, uh, since we were closing down the Met Opera House enjoy like a free month of nightly performances from the Mets vaults. And so you got to see these really cool performances of the Met from the past. Um, anyway. Wow. Yeah. So here's my thought is that art reflects life. Art informs life. Art can literally like, literally like be life changing. We see people move from one perspective to another because of creative and artistic expression. So artistic venues, I see making efforts to make what they have more widely accessible. So if you have the power of the Met or the Guggenheim, my hope would be that in your purview of responsibility, you would see like dissemination of the things that you have to the greater public. So you know, like uh, art is so important. And, uh, and we also know that there's a long history of people having reduced access to art. So 
now and this time of creativity and innovation and sharing art, like, why don't we continue in this way? And so I think that that's ultimately our frustration is that a friend did this really cool thing. I was not in New York. You were out of town. We did not get to see it. So we would love it like the production to grace our eyeballs. So our friend we- spent a week developing this thing. Like, wow. Full-time job for a week developing this 20-minute piece. Two That's times. amazing. I hope you're like, ooh. Two times. Yeah. I mean, and for an artist, that is an exceptional amount of time. I know she, um, she's been working on these different projects with the Guggenheim for months and hiring dancers and reflecting on um, I, I believe what the New York Times article was about was how she embodies the history of jazz um, and, and her journey with expression, with Afrocentric um, expression in dancing. And so it's, it's such laudable work and so important. Um, yeah. So it's I would so love important, to- So laudable that we should be seeing it more than two times. Yes, exactly. (laughs) All I'm asking for is two evenings. (laughs) (laughs) Two times, one day. By the way, quick sidebar. One of, uh, so I was a theater major and there's a whole another conversation we can have there about how that relates to my dancing life or how it's been a frustration in my dancing life Mm. for my own self and for how I've not, how Basically, I feel like I was a lot more natural of a stage actor than I have been as a performer in dance. But that's another conversation. Mm. Uh, Something that is, for me, so important about performing is that, um, uh, that the performance of the thing is why you do the thing, not as much the preparation. Like, preparation is somewhat part of the part of the reason why you do the thing but the actual performance of the thing is the main reason to mm-hmm. to go through the preparation process and so when uh so for instance if if we were doing a if we were preparing for a play or we would do you know let's say three months of rehearsal and then you get to perform the play like 15 16 times if you know it's in college you know you get you right. get a couple weekends with like right. four or five performances each yeah. Uh, so automatically you're like getting to, and, and a play is like two and a half hours long, like right. three hours long. Right. So you're getting like a really long perf- experience. Uh, and, and basically you get to really kind of like lit and, and like there is, you know, there's an improvisation to theater as an actor, like, yes, you've got your lines, but you're trying to live in the moment. You're trying to like experience yeah. the emotions that you're feeling around you on the stage. And you're trying to like, allow those to like move and and change and and alter some of the way that you're like being in that space and you have an audience there who's the whole time you're just getting you're just absorbing energy from the audience around you in order to like in order to like feel out what to do next so there's this incredible uh payback for all the hard work that goes into it Yeah. yeah now let's look at the modern swing dance routine scene you work your butt off to put together this two and a half minute piece. True. And then 
sometimes you only perform that piece like two times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like maybe you perform it, you know, once for your local scene and then it's IOLATE C time and then you've done it, right? Like yeah. <laughs> maybe you get a couple more times, you know, if you get the opportunity to travel around, you know, if you're lucky or, mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, so like maybe you get to perform it three or four times, but like there's so much work for two and a half minutes and then it's done. And so, um, something, uh, something I would, I, I feel like the, uh, I don't know, something, something I would love to see encouraged in the scene as we come back is to allow these artists to like really just live in that performance and do it a lot more times. Now, I don't know how we answer that question. Like maybe, um, you know, may, maybe at your local scene, you can try to find a way to like, not just like, I'd like to perform this routine at the dance this month. Maybe be like, I'd like to perform this dance at, you know, all the dances that are going around at least once. Or maybe like, I'd like to perform this routine at this dance maybe twice. Maybe I could do an early show and a late show. Like maybe I could perform like for the people who are the beginners who are just finished their beginner lesson. And then maybe I could perform it again later for like the crowd once everyone, you know, like once all the um, veterans show up late to the dance, you know, and they like that kind of stuff. Like I, uh, that, that's, that's how I, I, yeah. Anyway, those, that's just random sidebar. Yeah. I, I actually really appreciate that. Um, cause if you look at more of the concert dance space and I'm, I'm thinking about, um, so specifically at my university, they do this, um, they, they have this performance every year called Fusion, and it's a really cool idea. Um, one of the faculty members, Sarah Whale, works with a specific faculty member in, in any given field. So she's worked with political scientists. She's worked with um, writers. So the reason why this is coming, this is fresh in my mind, is that before the pandemic in 2020, my my friend who's an English professor, um, her PhD dissertation was, um, anyway, Sarah worked with her to uh, create a piece that was based on her PhD dissertation. And so there was this modern dance piece talking about uh, body politics of women and taking excerpts from, I believe, the 18th, and the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. Anyway, I'm sorry, Anna, I apologize, but um, taking excerpts from literature and taking ads from like the, the 20th century and putting them and overlaying that and having that as a, the soundscape for the dancers. And so, and Fusion had multiple performances. So, um, you were able to see this amazing dance piece over the course of a couple different weeks. And it was similar to theater in that um, you have multiple nights where you can go. And so in social dancing, I think you're right. We don't, we, we take that ephemeral piece that theater has and um, kind of take it to an extreme where it's like, this thing is happening for two minutes only on one night <laughs> versus... <laughs> Versus being like you put months into this two minutes because when you when you said two and a half minutes, I immediately thought about the different performances that I've been in and we've 
taken months to put together a two and a half minute piece, right? And so um, you could take days, but still, I agree. I think it would be really cool to see people um, maybe enjoying artistic expression and performance a little bit more for themselves and for and as audience members. Um, yeah, uh, I also wonder about our uh, performance culture, specifically in swing dancing, you know, like I, I, I don't know if we, I feel like we have, I feel like our performances often sit in the category of competition. Um, and in my mind, while there can be some overlap, competition is one thing and performances can be another thing. And um, what you're saying, I think, would be, yeah, would yes. firmly in a different category. Yeah. And I know part of, I know part of the problem is just our scenes, uh, our scenes set up for lack of a better word, the way our scene is set up, right? We're set up to like have, uh, maybe if you're, you know, most cities have like a weekly dance night and mm -hmm. maybe like some occasionally a, a bigger thing to go to, um, so I know that that's like, that's a limitation that like, it's hard to like get around. Like, and so, um, so I, I know that part of it just might be like the structure of our scene. Um, but in that case, if you're a performer lover, I would recommend, uh, trying to get out to non swing dancing audiences, like mm. write up, you know, call, call up your other, call up your other dance nights in town. This ballroom studio might really enjoy having a swing dance performance. Mm. This, uh, this soul line dance group might really enjoy seeing some Lindy hop or, or blues dancing or whatever you got to offer. Like, um, and that's a way, by the way, like something that, um, something that's been a real blessing to me coming to New York is how often I get to perform for non swing dance audiences and how that's, um, how that's such an important part of the dance is it's not only like it's historically important, like, it's not like Whitey's Lindy Hoppers were designed to only perform to Savoy ballroom dancers, right? Like that's kind of more our modern scenes concept of of a of a Lindy Hop performance. Mm -hmm. um, no, they were performing to twenty thousand non swing dancers in Madison Square Garden. They were performing mm -hmm. to um, weekly at Broadway shows and that kind of you know, or night nightly at Broadway shows and nightclubs. Mm -hmm. Like they they were designed to reach out to non they were designed to show that dance to show that that savoy culture to to entertain people uh in the audience and let them know hey there's this really cool thing going on have yeah. you heard about it yeah it's called harlem lindy hop yeah it's cool um another slight side tangent um i recently watched in the heights speaking of things all things new Ooh, i haven't seen it yet yeah i will say one thing and it shouldn't be a spoiler i think that was the best display of social dancing i've seen on screen which Ooh. yeah which brings me to another point which is when we think about swing dancing and performing swing dancing we might also think about videos and hollywood and one of my biggest pet peeves i think it's actually most swing dancers who spent more than like one class in swing dancing um <laughs> it's how swing dancing is represented on screen you know um i'm like there are so many brilliant people 
who can advise choreographers in Hollywood about swing dancing, but yet every single time I see it on screen, someone is overextending their arm and like looks like they're about to like dislocate their shoulder and like someone's not actually leading and following. Why, why, stop the madness, Bobby, stop the madness. <laughs> yeah, if, if journalism has gotten uh, swing dancing a little oversimplified, Hollywood has like by far overshot like Hollywood is so much worse than them. So journalists, don't worry. You're not Hollywood level misrepresenting uh Lindy Hop. It's so bad. Like swing dancing on like inevitably, this is what it the combination of things. And I watch oh I consume a lot of TV and media that has like cutesy little swing dance stuff in it, right? So it's always really bad Charleston and then like kicks some kind of aerial and then like bad partner connection and leaders stirring followers and followers like being, yeah. Like you have some good, you have good dancers, but the connection, which in my opinion is what separates really great solo dancers from great partner dancers the connection is just non-existent. It's just so not appealing and it looks uncomfortable. So anyway, so I should say good job. Good job in the Heights. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm called by a journalist. Yes. <laughs> from the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about Tasha. To talk about Tasha. <laughs> and so we have the interview and he tells me he's recording it. Um, man, that was like a while back. Okay, this is great. I love it. This, by the way, viewers, this is how our phone conversations go, and I now know that you're not surprised that they often last three or four hours. And so, for the for the recorded interview, three you know three or four things or layers are going on in my mind. First off, I'm like, okay, I'm being recorded, so that automatically makes me self conscious about what I'm saying, which is fine. Um, that's life. Second of all, I'm I'm talking about swing dancing, which I want to make sure I represent as correctly as possible. And thirdly, I'm talking about Latasha and black American aspects of the dance. And so I want to be doubly, triply, quadruply respectful of how I talk about it and, and make sure that I say things in a way that is as correct as I am possible at saying them. Uh, all of this is also really weird because fourthly, as a writer, as some of you podcaster, podcast listeners have probably picked up on now, my strength is not in saying things well just off the top of my head. <laughs> my strength is in writing something down that's kind of crappy on a page and then rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it until it comes out the way that feels right. Uh, and you can't do that when you're on a phone call, you know. Um, so anyway... Uh, you know, I do the thing, and um, as the conversation goes on, like, uh, he's really, truly, I want to give him some really good props, because he's really, truly trying to understand everything about the situation. Like, I'm getting the impression, and I got the impression, again, reinforced when I, when I heard the article, I had the impression that he was researching enough for a book. Oh, wow. To write an article, mm. which is fantastic journalism. Like that's what really good journalists do is they 
research a book's worth amount for that like 2000 word article. And uh, so I want to give him props on that. Uh, At the beginning, he didn't know what shape the article was going to take, which is also perfectly normal. Like that's, that's the way a lot of great writers write is they don't decide what it's going to be before they write it. They, they start writing it. They start doing the interviews. They start like trying to figure everything out and they let the story kind of come to them through the fog. They kind of just Mm -hmm. like walk around in a fog for a while until something, until they see something clearly and you know, that, that kind of thing. And so there's no, uh, I don't get a sense that there's an agenda other than understanding what Latasha has meant to the swing dancing. Mm. Now, the other thing that's going through my head at this moment, and it is a concern, is uh, the fact that is this person interviewing other people in the swing dance scene? If so, how many and who are they? The who are they isn't as important as the how many, because mm-hmm. now I'm starting to think like my point of view might be the point of view for this article, mm-hmm. which is not fun <laughs> to, to try to be talking and try to like make sure to cover not just my own bases, but every base I could imagine someone would want covered in the swing dance scene. Um, Anyway, so all that's going on through my head as we go through this this interview. Mm-hmm. And I even remember afterwards, like, uh, you know, like I get really excited talking about what Latasha has meant to me personally, but I'm not everyone in the swing dance scene. I don't know if y'all know this, but I'm I'm not. And <laughs> the uh and so even though <laughs> even though Latasha in a weird way was very was uh very important for me personally to see her dancing and to have that affect how I re-envisioned what dancing meant to me both on a fundamental level but also what jazz dance means to me and also um what jazz dance most likely meant to the pioneers of the dance and for a lot of you know for a lot of things that Tasha and I talk about all the time like all the conversations we've had about this kind of stuff um even though she's that to me, she's not necessarily that to another person in the scene, to many people in the scene, nor to the scene in general, right? And so basically after the entire interview was done and I'm like, I was like, okay, I think I did the best I could. Uh, the journalist has got to go anyway, so I can't like, you know, <laughs> so much more I could say. And so um, uh, we hang up on the phone or whatever. And then like over the next hour or so, I'm like, oh shit, did I – make Tasha the savior of Lindy Hop, which is a joke that uh, it's, you know, it's one of those like really kind of serious jokes uh, that pops up occasionally where like, um, I think Tasha got the advice, like don't at one point early in the scene, I think Tasha got the advice of like, don't let them make you the savior of Lindy Hop. Mm -hmm. Um, Where basically, you know, it's that, it's that uh, the magical black person trope of like, you know, a, a yeah. white community uh, gets a, a a black person who mm-hmm. like who like sh- quote shows them the way unquote and then they kind of so there's that kind of like weird savior mm-hmm. ideology about it. So this was the email I wrote. Hey, enjoy talking today. After the interview, one concern that I've had is that my interview may have implied the narrative of Tasha being the force coming in and changing Lindy Hop. 
I don't assume that's what you got out of it, but I just want to quickly mention that for my own sake, just to make sure I am clear on my view. The scene has an important community of black dancers, and it has dancers of all colors who are trying to embody the spirit of Lindy Hop, and were trying to do so before Tasha came to the scene. She is just a great role model for that, as well as a truly inspirational force. I just wanted to avoid a black person comes to white Lindy Hop and becomes a savior kind of narrative. Uh, and he said, thanks for the conversation and the clarification. I'll keep that in mind. So anyway, so that's like, uh, that's my experience from my end of things when the interview is being constructed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks. Thanks for sharing all of that. And I think you brought up some really, not, I think you brought up some really important thoughts, really important, um, reflective moments. Um, the idea of like the magical black person that you just described like that is definitely that's a trope so when we look at media there's and we look at stereotypical roles like taking it out of the racialized space like there's um ways that women are portrayed um in like different genres there are stereotypes about how men are in like action movies or so on right and so then if we step into the racialized space we can see like there are tropes and traps that the media falls into all the time when it comes um to people with racialized identities and so specifically with black people we have this magical it's and it is actually termed this so i apologize if this sounds offensive anybody but it's like the magical negro trope where you have um black person who um has these like magical properties and so um and they're often um like so if you watch movie often like older movies they'll be like this poor black man who like says something mystical that shows that furthers the plot of the main characters who are often white. Um, and that's the role that they play in that. And so then that person's life is forever changed because they ran into this person. I think the legend of Bagger Vance with Will Smith is kind of like a perfect example of this. Like you have this magical black man who all of a sudden appears and makes the world better. And so sometimes in life that happens with us, um, and so people will find a black person who says things in a way that they understand and who speaks to the heart of an issue when they're like, oh my goodness, you can show me the way. And in many, and in many respects, um, that has happened, that ha that we're, we're in danger of that happening with Latasha, right? And that it's at some degree, I think in some corners has happened. And so she is an incredible, incredible contributor in terms of an artist. She is revolutionizing an artistic space, multiple artistic spaces. Um, she is writing really important work. Um, she's doing some really great things and that is laudable, but we always have to manage how we put people on pedestals. And so I really appreciate um, the intention that you had 
uh, with that because she is your best friend, you know? And so of course she is the greatest human who's ever existed <laughs> because she is your best friend. Right. So, um, it's, but I, I really appreciate the like stepping back and being like, how can I make sure to elevate and highlight Tasha, but also not hurt and hamper other people, um, at the same time. So, um, because oftentimes what happens is like one person is elevated to the exclusion of other people or um, I've actually seen this in in my space in speech pathology in Zambia. Um, there are I I worked and um, as a communication specialist in Zambia for a few years and um, some people have kind of erased my existence and um, are trying to say that there were no Zambian speech therapists before like a couple years ago. Right. They obviously and, haven't checked the first four pages of Google. Right. <laughs> they have not needed to Google my name, but, but I know that I also wasn't the first Zambian speech therapist. And so I thought that I was at the time, I thought it was the first like Zambian born speech therapist. Um, but then I found out there's um, a Zambian speech therapist that works at a university in DC and he is significantly older than me. And I'm sure that there are other people who are out there, but because that history isn't easily accessible to people, they're like, Oh, this group of people are the saviors. And this group of people are, they're the ones who are doing things the first time. And so it's, it's really important when we, elevate voices and celebrate voices that we do so in in a manner that really honors their contribution um without erasing or dismissing other people's contributions and and that's actually a really easy thing to do um and it's exactly what happened with the new york times article right so because then the product ended up being this beautiful celebration of latasha's work like it highlighted so many of the things that she's doing and it um it came across that she does embody the history of jazz dance within herself she does and so and that's not saying that other people do not right but it was a celebration of her um and so the end result ended up being really cool and everything it should have been but it also didn't fall into the trap of being like there are no other black people contributing to lindy hop you know so, yeah. Yeah. And, and especially, and especially, you know, uh, having come from journalism and stuff, there are two, there are two additional like concerns. There are two additional concerns whenever y'all talk to a journalist out there. Okay. These are them. First off, storytelling is the person who comes in and saves Lindy Hop is a great story. And so even though they might try to understand the complexities of such a thing, um, they still might inadvertently either consciously or unconsciously have the story come across more like the, you know, more like a savior story because that's, that, that story is, is exciting and gets readers or what, or, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, second of all, yeah, it, I think it can be done innocently. I think it can be done maliciously, you know, uh, but it, it can be done. The other thing is space mm. writers in newspapers, especially are confined by space. 
They have only so many words that this story is going to have. And so um, they writing a sentence, Latasha, when Latasha Barnes came into Lindy Hop, you know, she began changing the face of it or whatever is a sentence that is shorter than when Latasha Barnes came into Lindy Hop, there were, you know, she found a small black American community trying to keep the spirit alive in the dance and to get with their forces combined, they began, you know, shaping and changing the landscape of Lindy Hop as we know it. Like, so you can see how like, uh, they they not only edit them their own stories, they also have editors that come through and edit those stories too. And so there are many places where sentences yeah. might get cut, an important word or two. Yeah. Um, and where, you know, they're juggling 4,000 ideas in that one story, they might have to sacrifice, you know, the clarity and the complexity mm-hmm. in order to stay on the main target. I've actually been cut out of my own story that way. That's another conversation for another day. Um, but, but you're right. Like when you, when you have to prioritize, it becomes really easy to simplify a story and then have it be inaccurate. And so, yeah, that is a really, really good point. And so, um, I, this makes me think about Chimamanda Adichie's The Danger of a Single Story. And so, right. And so it, when you only encounter one story about a, a type of a group of people um, or one story about a person, you're getting a singular view and our different stories about a person open up our eyes to their context. And so it's really important for us to be on a continual hunt for stories. Um, and then also to question and examine the stories that we're presented with. And so, um, yeah, that I love those points, Bobby. All right, we here at Integrated Rhythm, we're going to be real with you. Capitalism, it's a complex thing. Lots of things going on there. Some things are good, some things are not so good, some things are pretty bad. Like most things, you know, my, like most governments in the world, there's some pretty big issues. However, we can use capitalism to make some cool stuff happen. We can use capitalism to put money into the black American community so that they can thrive and prosper and continue giving us the incredible things that they've already given us in this culture, including jazz and jazz dance, which, you know, needless to say, this podcast, you know, depend, we, we all love here. If you're listening to this podcast, if you're getting through an episode, chances are you love black American art. And so the way that you can support the black American community using capitalism is by buying from black businesses. How do you find a black business? It's easy. Go on to Google and that thing that you're looking for, type that in and then say black owned business. Enter. Boom. It might take a couple seconds to like flip through some things, but hey, that's still easier than like getting in the car and driving off somewhere and, and spending, you know, four hours of your life trying to buy a thing. What if you don't know what you want, like you're getting a gift for somebody and you want to support the black American community? Well, you can type in Google gifts, black owned businesses, enter easy as that. Or you can go into Etsy, black owned businesses, enter 
easy as that. So once again, we here at Integrated Rhythm support Black-owned businesses is supporting Black Americans and the art that they give us. And speaking of Black-owned businesses, the pianist you're hearing, the incredible pianist you're hearing, is nothing other than Baron Ryan. That is Laurel Ryan, swing dance instructor and MC legend's brother, Baron Ryan. You can check out this album that you're listening to here by going to firstofitskind.net. Firstofitskind.net. It's a really cool project. This is rights-free music. Anyone can use it. And you can also check out all of his music at baronryan.com. That's B-A-R-R-O-N-R-Y-A-N.com. Hey, everybody, this is Bobby White from Integrated Rhythm. We're here to ask you to please consider donating to the podcast. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash integrated rhythm. You can do so by Venmoing at Bobby Swungover. And make sure to put a little IR in the note so we make sure it goes to the right people. You can also do so by PayPaling at Bobby White 3. And once again, putting a little IR in the, in the window there. Doing so will help us keep this podcast going, and we love doing it, and we hope you love it too. If you can't afford to donate at this time because times are rough, we totally understand. We don't want you to put yourselves out. We want you to keep enjoying the podcast for free. However, if you have a little bit of pocket change in your pocket, we would greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thanks, and have a great day. We're back. All right, so... Then the article comes out, and as Jasome already mentioned, he did a fantastic job. He did a great job, I, I, especially coming from someone who understands all the work that he put into it and how long he took with just my, you know, when someone takes like an hour and a half to talk to me to understand everything, and then, and then there's only like a paragraph or two in a story, you know, think about that to everything, right? Like, so maybe every paragraph or two has at least an hour and a half or two hours of interviews, maybe even much longer in research, um, all that sort of thing. By the way, the, the author did also talk to Latasha quite a lot, which is, I think, how certain, like he asked me certain questions that he only would have known if he had talked to Latasha. Um, and so I know he extensively talked to Latasha and got like a lot of great places of where to go and, and, and discuss more. Um, so uh, let's see. So here, here uh, the part, um, enter Bobby White, a swing dance champion, teacher, and amateur historian. By the way, for those out there who are like amateur historian, uh, that seems to be all he does <laughs> during the quarantine. Or whatever. Uh, <laughs> I think that implies that I don't have a degree from a, uni- uh, from a university. Um, I believe that's what that implies, uh, which I don't. You have a degree from a university. You don't have a degree from a university. In history, in right. Yeah. History. Sorry. I just, I'm, yeah. I'm a theatrical historian. I can, <laughs> act like a, I can act like a historian and people don't even know the difference. I have a tweet coat and everything. Um, uh, <laughs> when he came to urban artistry to teach a vintage jazz dance called the Big Apple, he noticed that Barnes, trying the routine for the first time, looked uncannily blah, blah, blah. We'll get to that in a second. So this, this is an example of, I think, him having to shorten the story due to space. 
He says, when he came to Urban Artistry to teach a vintage jazz dance called the Big Apple, that is not at all a true representation of what happened. What happened is, is that we group of swing dancers went to take Latasha's class, which we had been, uh, this was our first time, like as a group kind of taking a field trip to, to take classes at the Urban Artistry um, group. We get there. Tasha knows Jeff Booth, one of the guys, uh, one of our dancers with us. And he's like, yeah, I brought all of our, you know, I brought our like swing dance crew. And, and so they, Latasha and Toyin, her, her, her house partner who were running the class. Uh, I think Tasha was running the class and Toyin was just there. I, I don't remember that particularly clearly, but basically Tasha, who was in some way in charge of the class was like, let's see what you got. And so she watched us do some jazz dancing. And every time we did a step, she um, would say that looks like this. And then she'd do like, you know, a few different steps from other generations of black American dance. And so basically Tasha and I, so basically Tasha was like, okay, this whole class, we're just going to trade. And so everyone's going to learn about, you know, this great, the jazz dance history. And you're just going to see how all of it kind of works together and stuff like that. Um, is basically what ended up happening. And so to say that I came to Urban Artistry to teach the Big Apple implies that I was asked by Urban Artistry to come and teach specifically the Big Apple. Neither, none of that was, was what happened. Um, so uh, that's an example of how this, yeah. the actual reality can get transformed a little bit um, just for either for space purposes or for because, you know, this person, uh, the, the reporter had done a little bit of swing dancing in their lives back in the day, which, uh, which is great. Uh, but you know, that was a long time ago. You never know how much, what their perception of the scene was and how much that's going to, again, make them misrepresent swing dancing when they write about it now after they hadn't done it for a long time. So mm -hmm. I, that's another like, kind of like a weird red flag that I would get if a journalist called up and was like, Oh yeah, I did some swing dancing back in 1999. You're like, uh, yeah. uh okay. Some things have changed. Um, yeah, this is something to change. Uh, so yeah, so that's an example of of how that like how the reality turned into that in the story. Um, and this is something that like this is not uncommon. Like this is, you know, this happens in journalism very regularly. Uh, so when you're looking back, uh, if you're doing research and looking back at like uh, newspaper articles or stuff in the past, take that in mind that. You, you, you probably know that what you're seeing isn't necessarily like reality or maybe it's just one viewpoint, but also take in mind that that story kind of changed pretty dramatically in terms of its actual importance. It wasn't important that a white guy like me was going to urban artistry. Uh, and, and in fact, the way that they write it makes it seem like Latasha was my student. Like I came to urban artistry to teach the Big Apple. I noticed Tasha trying to do the routine for the first time. That sounds like I'm a teacher and I've noticed my student as being awesome. No, 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 no. <laughs> I went to urban artistry as a student. Tasha saw us playing around with jazz and she made it the focus of the class. And that's when I noticed her doing uh, movement in this way. Okay, so moving on. Uh, I know uh, he noticed that Barnes trying the routine for the first time looked uncannily like one of the least famous dancers of the most famous group of original black Lindy Hoppers, Whitey's Lindy Hoppers. I thought that was actually, I thought that was a great sentence. 
it, it really kind of put it really quickly that like I saw Latasha Barnes dancing uncannily like one of I love the way he said that like one of the least famous dancers of the most famous group. Um, mm -hmm. uh, he's talking about Joyce James. Also, he linked to my swung over article on Joyce James. And when I saw yeah. that in the New York Times, I was like, oh, shit, I better go read that article because I haven't read it in 10 years. Like I wrote that 10 years ago. And needless to say, I think I've, uh, you know, I've I've gotten a better understanding of yeah, you, you've gone through an evolutionary process over the last 10 years, which is cool. That's what everyone, you know, we yeah. all. So. And so, so I went back into the article and there was like, there's some bad, I, I took out a paragraph of just kind of like bad writing. Like it wasn't anything like horrible. Like it wasn't anything, you know, that like I truly regret it. It would have been fine if it was in there, but I was just like, that's bad enough writing. I'm going to take it out of some New York times. People are going to be reading. <laughs> uh, fun side fact. Um, so, you know, uh, WordPress informs you whenever someone links to one of your articles. Mm. And so the New York Times linked to my article. The second that article, the second the New York Times article was published, I got a notification, which is how I was the first person to share it. Tasha didn't even know it had come out when I told her, like, hey, and when I sent her, like, the, the screenshot of, like, hey, I, I'm <laughs> not, don't mean to brag, but I know this person. Um <laughs> And, uh, and she was like, what it's, it's out. And so the reason why I knew it was out was just because of the notification. So I get that first notification from the New York times. I then get over the next couple days, about 50 more notifications or something like 30 to 50. And you can actually see them in the comment section of the article. Uh, it turns out that a, uh, uh, that some internet scam is that a website will copy and paste articles from the New York times into their own like blog thing. Oh, so that when, when a writer for the New York times writes a story, they're also writing it for like 30 to 50 scam websites who are, oh. you know, getting traffic because when people Google the article or whatever, they go and read it there for free or whatever. Yeah. So, that's an interesting fact I learned. That's well, one, it's kind of like readership, more accessible accessibility to the article. That's kind of cool. Internet scam, that's kind of not cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so the article goes on. I had never seen anyone else move that way, White said. I mean, that's true, aside from like Joyce James and Alma Mins. Um, uh, in, in, in the very specific context of modern day Lindy Hop. Mm -hmm. um, and as, as Barnes began studying Lindy Hop with him and others, ascending at her usual rate, he marveled at how she was doing stuff that no one had seen before that still made total sense because, of, uh, because it was in the music. All of that is true, like I, or for my experience. Mm -hmm. um, and see, th that's something that I wish, in hindsight, what I would have gone back and edited, having seen that and like had a chance to do a rewrite is uh i would have said she was doing stuff that i hadn't seen before because at that point that was a time when i made the mistake of speaking for the scene and that was wrong and i wish i could go back and change that she was doing stuff that i hadn't seen before that still made total sense because it was in the music even though i could you know yeah so mm -hmm. that is a change i would definitely make if i could go back 
when Barnes tried a swing out, the essential whip around turn in Lindy partnering, what she thought was, I've felt this before from her grandmother. She learned that she had already been taught the dance by her great grandmother. And then it became a way to honor her. Barnes said, every time jazz music comes on, I feel her from white's perspective. Barnes became an inspirational role model, bringing a spirit of jazz dance that the Lindy Hop scene had been missing as she joined a new generation of black dancers devoted to the form. So on the one hand, like they, they, he, he mentioned or made sure to include that there were other black dancers who are bringing the spirit of jazz dance uh, to Lindy Hop that it had been missing. One could probably argue that, uh, and I'm glad he says from White's perspective, so from my perspective, because I could be totally wrong about this. Um, and again, it's one of those things that, like, if I could go back and re-edit this a few times, I probably would have been a lot happier with with what I had said. Um, isn't that life, right? <laughs> isn't yeah. that everything? Yeah, I, I, I'm going to have to think about that and see how I feel about past Bobby's portrayal of that. Yeah. So, uh, so something that was a little scary was that um, I do seem to have been the main person speaking for the white voice of the scene. Mm. Uh, as far as I can, as far as I remember from the article, as far as what I've seen, and they they also had uh, Tina Morales um, interviewed, although. Whereas I got two paragraphs, Tina only got one quote. Um, I'm not saying that's, I'm not saying that's automatically wrong. I'm just like, that did raise an eyebrow. Like, okay, so I get, you know, um, and I know that like, uh, yeah, so that was kind of weird that like the perspective of the white person talking about a predominantly white scene gets X amount of space, whereas the black woman who's been in the scene and been an important leader in the scene for way longer than I've been, uh, you know, anything, uh, is, uh, that raised an eyebrow to me, but you know, like I, I, yeah, there's yeah. just, I, I think it's a good eyebrow to raise, you know, it says something about, I mean, this goes back to like our autopilot about how we treat people in general. And so um, I think it's important to acknowledge that Tina is such a, a force within the scene, such a force for good. Um, the person who has made sure that we have the international indie hop comp competitions, the person who has installed uh, essentially the only all black event um, within swing dancing and other um, African-American social dances, you know, eight, um, HSDC, right? Yeah. Um, and so um, I believe, is that Houston Swing Dance Competitions? Oh, so I, uh, I think, I think HSDS, Houston Swing Dance Society is her, okay. is her official group, okay. I think. Okay. And then the annual event is through there. And, um, and so she has, She's a major contributor in, in terms of the structure of swing dancing and then also in terms of connecting swing dancers to other Black communities and um, mentoring, supporting uh, swing dancers of racialized identities. Um, she has done a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot 
And I think that, um, and I'm spending this time saying these words because I think that we, a lay person in swing dancing may not realize how much Tina has contributed, you know? And so, um, so I, I hear you and I, I too raise my eyebrow with you. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, also I'm the like grammar nerd in me is just loving the deconstruction of the process of this article. I'm just so, cause it's, I think it really raises the point that you need to be careful about how you consume information, right? Yeah, yeah. And so- absolutely. Let's throw this out to our listeners, all 44 million of them. If <laughs> yeah. you, uh, you know, hey, well, you know, like, uh, what were your thoughts on the article? What were your thoughts on, like, the parts that I was in? I won't get hurt. Um, I'm trying to learn better to do better. Um, you know, like, if, if something was like, oh, well, you know, this was maybe not the best thing. Maybe you should have, maybe this is a route to possibly go. But basically, you know, like, uh, call me in to, if you got, you know, thoughts on the matter that you would love to, and, and maybe, maybe, you know, if there's a lot of great stuff, we can, uh, we can follow up and kind of like talk about it a little bit more. That is I N T rhythm at gmail.com. That's int rhythm. I N T R H Y T H M at gmail.com send it there say let's say tasha's article is a great subject line and just be like hey here are my thoughts blah 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 blah. yeah i love that yeah and then if there's anything in this episode that's like sparked some thought about how to look at journals journal articles so um so we're specifically talking about the new york times as a periodical um but you can use the same critical lens, like with basically any article that you consume. There's always, doesn't even matter if it's you're reading a 20 page article, there's always a page limit, there's always a word limit. And um, so people are often trying to condense and um, make things be succinct. And we often, like the trade off is like space accuracy. So, um, yeah. If there's anything that happened in our discussion that you find interesting, we'd love to hear about that too. And uh, you reminded me, uh, Shar Shar, that yeah, yeah. the uh, the further your writer is away from expertise, just the more careful you got to be, like mm. how you interpret the article. Um, so for I, I do all the time with the Harvest Moon Ball articles that I that I go through. Um, it's you know, I have to, I don't have to keep reminding myself. It's actually pretty clear, but uh, one might have to, you know, for instance, a person reading them might have to remind themselves, this is a newspaper reporter who is reporting on a black American art form in the 1930s slash 40s slash 50s slash 60s slash 70s. Therefore, you know, they are uh, by all accounts, a white male writing about this art form and this is probably one of the 12 articles they're writing this month mm -hmm. so you know like take all of those things into account when you read what you're reading um yeah 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 i i appreciate that and um i i also love how you went into the interview um for any of you who have the opportunity to be interviewed i think what you said, Bobby, is really important is to have clear, intentional ideas. And since you are 
speaking, speaking is ephemeral and quotes are like a snapshot of a singular moment in time. Um, and it, it can be hard to have like great sound bites on demand. Um, but it is really important, like you said, if you're working with somebody who is a journalist and they're further removed from whatever the subject matter is, um, to keep that in mind. Yeah. I've, I, I know ex I've seen this happen multiple times because I've been interviewed multiple times and it's always interesting to see what the product is after the interview. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah.